market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that like bonds, be they undies, spies or financial assets. I'm Andrew Page. And I'm Scott Phillips. Didn't like that? Uh, What's not on your best? No. Let's move on. Okay. So, what the hell? Well, we're talking about bonds. Uh, surprise, surprise. But and stay tuned because it's not as boring as it sounds. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a, a method to the madness. If you like it, it was a great segment. If not, it was Andrew's fault. It was his idea. <laughs> totally. Uh, the awful truth about financial planners. They've gotten a bit of a bad rap recently. And, we're gonna and for of, a very good reason. Yeah, we're going to pick into that. And uh, also, we have got a ton. We asked for questions and we've been uh, just absolutely bombarded, which has been great. Amen. So as long as Scott doesn't uh, talk for too long, <laughs> we're going to get through as many of those as we can. We've started very adversarially, haven't we? We have. It's a lot like us. Know. We're normally we're normally nice people. I know. I, I don't know. Maybe it's the full moon, the blood moon, whatever it was Not called that sleep, was recently. I think, probably, <laughs> probably it as well. <laughs> and of course, it wouldn't be a Motley Fool Money podcast without <laughs> one of us having a bit of a rant. And it's Scott's turn this hey. week to get up onto his high horse. Stay tuned, fools. This is going to be great. But first, bonds. Yes. Financial bonds. Mm. <laughs> Can you give me a definition of a bond? I like the way you do that. You say, here's a really interesting and boring and convoluted topic. Scott, what do you think? <laughs> That's right. Hot I'm potato. Not, <laughs> I'm actually not going to start answer your question, Andrew. Okay. Do you want me oh, to do it? No, I'll do something very different. Okay. I'm going to call in our producer, Liam Flanagan. Mm. G'day, Liam. Hello, gentlemen. Now, many, 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 many more people listen to your program than ours. <laughs> okay. However... I do want to give you a wrap. Your okay. new show, Rush Hour with MG on the Triple M Network, is yes. doing spectacularly well. Thank you This very is much. neither paid nor sought, but no. I wanted to give you a wrap and say, well done. Sure. Thoroughly enjoying listening to it, mate. So Fantastic. There is a quid pro quo expected. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're, Thors, if you're not listening already, do yourself a favour. If you're in Sydney, Liam, or is yeah, it? Yeah, Sydney. In Sydney check or you can it out. subscribe to the podcast. There you go. I was going to say that. <laughs> check it out. Triple M Podcast, Rush Hour with MG, it's called. Yeah, it is. And frankly... He makes you sound good. I was very nervous you were going to ask me to explain what a bond was. <laughs> Give it a go. Go on. I've got no idea. I've heard of them before. That makes three of I've us. Got, but we'll, we'll I, I wouldn't know how to buy one or sell one. There you go. Have I stalled long enough? Yeah, you have. All right. Do, do check out Liam's new show. It's yeah, awesome. it really is a cracker. Anyway, um, uh, so bonds. Well, you know, here, um, first things first, I've never bought one. Me either. Um, uh, in fact, in Australia, they don't tend to really um, pervade into sort of the retail space. It, there's not a lot of... There's not a lot of bond activity on, on the Aussie scene, but they are very, very important financial instruments. And, and before so, we go too much further, let's try and define our terms. Okay, a bond, look, a bond is an IOU, and it's one of the, the oldest form of financial instruments there are. It is generally, um, it can be between a company, can between be between a government, but basically they'll say, lend us some amount of money, mm-hmm. thousand bucks, mm-hmm. we'll pay you back at some set date in the future. Yep. And we will pay you interest along the way. It's kind of basically a, a term deposit of sorts, except mm-hmm. rather than putting your money in a bank and getting interest, you are effectively leaving your money with a government or a company yeah. and expecting interest plus your principal back at some point. It's been a great time. way to finance wars and uh, uh, walls and all kinds of things that governments <laughs> need to finance. Mostly just those two, actually. And it's been a, fa- they are absolutely the revolution. And one of the, one of these, one of the instruments that really was um, underpinned the, the rise of civilization, if I could be so bold, you I can. think they have been uh, almost as important as the in- advent of money themselves. Yeah, so the wheel that I was going to laugh at you. <laughs> or fire. So you've probably heard about things like your, U.S. Treasuries. Mm. The U.S. Treasury is a U.S. Treasury bond. Mm. You might have heard of gilts, for those of you who pay a little bit more attention to the AFR or the financial press. Mm-hmm. Those are U.K. gilt-edged bonds, mm. are you gilts. Mm. And we even have some in Australia which are colloquially known as kangaroo bonds. That's right. Um, 
not only governments, but companies also do that. Apple has released bonds, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's basically a way of providing financing to a government or a company mm-hmm. rather than borrowing money from the bank. They go to go to investors and say, well, you could buy our shares or you could buy our bonds. And that also could be governments as well. And as you say, Andrew, has in the past been used to finance a whole lot of stuff. In fact, in the US, it's pretty much just an ongoing process of funding the government deficit in general. Yeah. Um, and similarly here in Australia, Australia's government has to finance that with something. They finance the government debt, the budget deficit, with bonds. They are considered amongst, in fact, the lowest risk asset you can have. You, you are you, mm-hmm. The government, generally speaking, and you're talking about the government bonds, are, are the lowest um, risk product you can have because if they're not going to pay you back, well, there's, there's much bigger problems uh, afoot. So I want to keep I want to keep our fools interested here. Why the hell are bonds relevant? Well, there's been a bit of chatter in in the financial world about a crash in bond market. Crash in bond market. Now here's where it gets. You've got to sort of do a little bit of mental gymnastics because when there is a crash in bond prices, mm. it means that yields go up. So that so, so they have promised you in advance. <laughs> yep. I told you it's going to be hard not to go through the oh, looking God. glass here. Here we go. But you've you've been promised that look, we're going to pay you X dollars every so often mm-hmm. until this thing matures. So let's say you buy a hundred dollar bond, mm-hmm. and the bond's going to pay you two bucks a year. Two bucks a year, fantastic. Now 2%. let's say that bond now worth is now worth fifty dollars. Oh, that's all right. Now they're still going to the promise is still there. The yep. commitment is still there. Um, unless the whole thing goes bust, <laughs> they're still going to pay you two dollars. But two dollars as a percentage of fifty dollars right. is four percent, which is fine if you're the one buying the bond for fifty bucks. Mm-hmm. But if you bought the bond for hundred bucks, now it's worth fifty. You've done your dough. Yeah, you, you're going to need a lot of those coupon payments to recoup your capital. And we, sh- we should be clear too. This is about not the government not paying you back the full amount. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that during the life of the bond. Other investors will buy it off you for a set price, and you have to decide as an investor: do you hold it to maturity and get you two percent, yep, or do you sell out at some other point before or after that to try and make your money back? Right. And so all of this is to say: so the hell what? <laughs> Why does that matter? Well, yeah. the reason it matters is because, in essence, bonds, long-term government bonds in particular, are pretty much what set interest rates. You know That's what? really the north star there. So at the moment, as Unless you've been living under a rock, you would know that interest rates are at historic lows. Mm-hmm. And that's because people are just happy to accept lower and lower coupon payments, lower and lower interest payments in return for lending the government money. Because they feel like at least it's risk-free, at least my money's protected. I'm not going to take risk out there. Yep. Lots and lots of people want to buy the bonds. Yes. So the government says, well, I'm not going to pay much interest. If you're rushing me to, to buy my bonds, I'm going to pay you as little as I possibly can to finance my budget. If debt. you're the issuer of a bond, you want the lowest possible interest rate, It's right? like a bank offering the lowest possible term deposit rate it can get away with. Yep. It wants your money. Yes. If it doesn't have to pay more for it, why would you? Now, the US economy is doing rather well. It is. In fact, the global economy is starting to pick up. We, we, synchronized we, growth, they're calling it. Synchronized growth. Isn't that good? Isn't it? I love that. Um, and, and, and because of that, and because of this increase in optimism, mm-hmm. and because of maybe some signs of a bit of inflation, but potentially down the road coming back, people are, are starting to demand higher rates of interest, which mm-hmm. means bond prices are falling. Now we are generally in the business of talking about shares. And yes, so indeed. let's let's draw a line between these two things. Very good the reality idea. is is that as interest rates go up, mm-hmm. all else being equal, share prices tend to go down. What? And there's two reasons for that. 
The first is that, well, I guess, you know, companies tend to borrow money and when interest rates go up, that's a higher interest expense and mm -hmm. that that's, means less profit at the end of the day. Right. But the more important factor is, is that as an investor, there's this thing called opportunity cost. Oh, I can out. put my go. money in a bond. I can buy a bar of gold. Uh, I can do whatever the hell I want with it. So You're a short leash, Mr. Page. Be careful. So, here. Sorry. So if, if, if bonds are going up. Now, these are the safest investments in the world, yes. right? So the interest rate on them is getting higher and higher and higher. You know, all of a sudden, my uh, Sydney airport shares, which mm -hmm. might be offering me about 4.5%, you aren't as attractive as they once. Well, there's risk there, even right. with an asset like Sydney airports. So if I'm getting a better and better yield with this virtually risk-free asset, mm -hmm. comparatively speaking, that looks less attractive. So that is why when, bond pro when, when interest rates go up, Share prices tend to go down. Right. Why pay more? Why take more risk with shares if I can get a better return with something that's risk free? And at the moment, when you look at valuations uh, in general um, across US markets and across Australian market, they're, they're pretty high levels, at least historically. Mm -hmm. And so the worry is with this collapse in bond prices and the subsequent rise in yields and therefore interest rates, mm -hmm. are we in for a bit of a, do, are we facing a bit of a headwind in terms of share prices? What say you, Mr. Phillips? I say you're trying to be negative again. I love you are your bloody bear pit, bloody <laughs> negative. So here's the thing. Yeah, yeah, so firstly, yes, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we've seen that with house prices. The, 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 the proxy is exactly oh, that. going to get to house prices. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there, you go there you go. So we've seen house prices rise in part because you can buy more house with the same interest pay. Yeah. Effectively, as rates have fallen, if you can afford X dollars a month in repayments, mm. if the interest rate halves, you can effectively pay almost twice as much for the house for the same repayment. And that's... The, the real world equivalent of that exact bond story. And flipped around as well. If you've got an investment property, you're happy to accept a lower rental yield. Right. Because again, there's this opportunity cost, there's this interest. comparison exactly. of what you might get elsewhere. Now, if that is true though, to your mm -hmm. very point, whether it's shares or property or anything else, as rates rise, that should mean you can afford effectively to pay to pay less for the asset in the first place, whatever that asset is. Yeah. A house, a property, a bond, literally something else. As rates go up, you can afford to pay less. You can only afford to pay less for that because your return goes down. Right. So do we need to be worried? I think we need to be cautious. I alert, think but not alarmed? Alert, but <laughs> Thank you for invoking Mr. <laughs> uh, I think It was Mr. Rudd, wasn't it? No. Wasn't it? Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, but not alarmed. Keep up. Sorry. Um, the... As you are, continue. <laughs> um, the, the... I can <laughs> barely remember I last week. I was trying to thought now. Um, so yes, look, as rates go up, the share market PE should come down by the definition. price to earnings multiple? Correct. So in other words, if you're paying a certain price earnings multiple at 1% interest rate, mm -hmm. at a 3% interest rate, you should be paying less for that because the relative attractiveness of shares will change mm. compared to those bond prices, particularly government bonds at the risk-free rate, as you say. So mm -hmm. that that is, am I worried? No, I, I expect that profit will continue to grow over time. I'm not doing anything differently, but we should say that it's very, very probable. It's In fact, it should happen if, if the theory is correct, and it has been, P's have gone up as interest rates have come down, which it should happen. Mm -hmm. So we'd be mad not to expect the same thing to happen in reverse as rates go up, PE should come down and therefore share prices should come down with it. Yeah, it'll be an interesting thing to watch. So I am going to apologize right now for that very long and tenuous <laughs> journey and foray for into the world. For the still of... with us, we're going to move on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it's important because it does, it, you know, 
you don't have to care about bonds, but you have mm. to be mindful of what the impact of the broader financial markets have on share prices. Yeah, and I, I guess I just, I'd just i wrap up by saying none of this should be a surprise. Whenever you're investing long-term, it's just the only way to invest. Right. You know, you, you can't, if you're going into it thinking that interest rates are only ever going to go down and stay down, you, you're, you're living, you know, you're living a lie here. They're, these things move in cycles. So as mm. long as you, and same for property investors we've talked about before, as long as you've sort of accounted for the inevitability of this, you should be okay. I think this but, was an entire reason for you to talk about property, wasn't it? Oh, wow, well, I did want this was the entire, this was the entire charade was to get you to talk about property somehow. Did you know that Sydney prices came down 2%? Oh, and, crashing. And yes. Uh, was it 1.5% or something? <laughs> came down a little bit. Like, hey. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. So the, the truth about financial planners. So, Dear mate, fi- a lot, financial planning is this um, really important thing. I mean, we, we, we can't talk about the importance of sitting down and considering your financial future. Yes, sir. It's a very, very good idea. And, you know, ev- the, w- w- human society being what it is, <laughs> we tend to specialize in various fields. And you can see people who specialize in this. And they'll help you get a budget in order. They'll help you do a will. They'll help you with your investments. It's, you know, there is a really good uh, reason yes, sir. To, to think about these things and to seek professional help. Yep, absolutely. And you should. And you should. However, um, uh, and, and I've got to say this very carefully in advance, we're, we're going to be general <laughs> here. So there, there is a lot of really, really great financial planners out there, but it turns out that they've got a bit of a bad rap lately. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? And unfortunately, justifiably. So here's the problem, right? I'll, I'll give away the, the punchline up front. Incentives matter a heap. Mm. And so you, when you think about anything you're doing in life, let alone in your financial life, think about the incentives of the guy or girl on the other side of any transaction, real estate agents, shopkeepers, banks, uh, and financial planners. Now, the headline in the, AS, the SMH, sorry, a couple of weeks ago, a week ago, was most big bank planners fail to act in their clients' interests. <gasps> That's about as much as you actually, we could stop this right now, right? That is the exact key point, but. Well, so they're just the evil is what you're saying. Well, let me hold that thought on a second. Okay. Three out of four pieces of advice mm. was found by ASIC to not be in the client's best interest. That means that Liam, yourself and me, if we're in a fourth person in the room, mm. three of the four of us would have got crappy advice mm. from a bank financial planner. Which is absolutely criminal. Despite only one in five products being classified as internal. So let's think about a product list. You're a planner. You've got a list of products you can give me to invest in. By products, we're really talking about a managed fund, right? Ah, different funds and options. Yeah, exactly. There's a whole lot of versions of that. But Mm -hmm. yes, effectively. Mm -hmm. One in five was classified as internal. In other words, if you're a, I'm not going to use individual examples because I don't want to be Your bank A? If you're you're Andrew Bank Mm -hmm. and you're Andrew Bank Bank financial planner. Come see us. Of your entire list of managed funds you can provide. 20% 20% of those are Andrew Bank products. Mm-hmm. The other 80% come from somebody else. Okay. So you'd kind of expect, well, maybe something roughly about 20% of the products given to those customers mm. would be Andrew Bank products, right? Turns out two thirds of the money invested mm. went into one fifth of those products that were managed, guess what? And owned by the bank. Mm. This is an absolute debacle. One in 10 customers mm. was actually made objectively worse off because of the advice they received from their bank-owned financial wow. planner. Okay. I was going to say, that the argument could be, well, does it not just maybe turn out that they happen to be the better products? Uh, yes, it could be. If Andrew Bank maybe is fantastic. But you mm. know what? If Andrew Bank's customers end up with two-thirds of their money in, in 20% of products, mm. and Scott Bank's customers end up the same, and Liam Bank's customers end up the same, what is the chance that every one of those banks happen to have just the exact best product for only their clients and nobody else? Well, logically, it doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't pass the... 
Sniff pub test. test doesn't yeah. pass. Sniff test doesn't pass a bullshit test, quite frankly. Yeah. I used that word in the article I wrote for, I think, the first time ever. Because mm-hmm. it frankly got me so unbelievably mad that I couldn't I know, you, I I couldn't know this myself. is uh, something that gets under, under your, a bit hot under the collar. It's getting close to my high horse. And we may, yeah. well, we may well call this my high horse if we run out of time. But the reality is, look, incentives matter, as I said. Well, here's, here's what I was going to say. So why would, why would the planners do this for so are they inherently evil or is there a dynamic at play here and like everything there's a continuum mm-hmm. a very small proportion very small portion are inherently evil yes okay they will do whatever it takes mm-hmm. and the clients well, that's true the, of any profession of, product, of course they yeah, right. and so some of them are saying well i want a promotion i'm going to make my boss look good i'm going to make his boss look good mm-hmm. i'm going to make my financial planning business look good mm-hmm. how do i do that I carry favor with the boss. Mm-hmm. What does he want? He wants more of my bank's products recommended. Mm-hmm. Hey, I can solve that problem for you. Yeah. And the beauty of this is like some unnamed media organizations, you don't need an edict from the top to say, you must say this in your editorial policies. Mm-hmm. You simply say, the boss believes this thing. That's mm-hmm. interesting to know. Mm-hmm. Do I really, really want to cross the boss or do I just want to go along with what he thinks I should do? The boss never has to say anything. Right. He just makes it known that the financial planning business of Andrew Bank is really important to us mm-hmm. and we're going to try and maximize profits in Andrew Bank. Are there other financial incentives at play beyond sort of more psychological issues? So there kind of is and not. One of the great things, one of the great more recent changes was a lot of commissions were removed from the system. So you can no longer charge Thank some commissions. For right, that. right, right. But the thing is, despite that, we're still getting this massive imbalance of financial planning advice being given. Mm-hmm. So there was a direct financial. Now, what else is there? What was that? Is he whose bread I eat is some I sing. You think about what, so you're, you're an Andrew Bank financial planner. Mm-hmm. Every day you get information about Andrew Bank's financial products. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of just subconsciously more likely to recommend them. Yep. And the bank knows that. That's why they give you that information, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know the boss is going to make his bonus. And the, the, if you're a practice that's owned by a bank, mm. you're going to make more money mm. if you get a kickback from the financial planner to the business, not to the planner itself. Mm-hmm. But if the product manufacturer in the lingo, so the Andrew Bank, gives more money to the Andrew Bank financial practice because they recommend that product, mm. Well, then why would you not? Okay. Do you own shares in Andrew Bank? There's a million, a million examples of where the incentives of the planner mm. are not aligned with the incentives of the customer, and that is the fundamental problem. Okay. So I'm, I'm a man on the street, and I'm, and I'm thinking I want to get some good financial advice. Yes. I go see a financial planner. Yep. How do I keep them on the straight and narrow? How do I do that in a way that I'm confident that I am getting good advice? I'm holding them to account. What do I do? So Give, give me something practical here. First thing I would, frankly, the first thing I would say is if you want the best possible avoidance of, of incentives, of adverse incentives, mm-hmm. go and find a plan that's not aligned with a bank or a major financial institution. Okay. And that's not always easy. And again, as you said, there are some great bank-owned financial planners. Mm-hmm. The reality is the rest of them are tarring them with the same brush. Mm. And frankly, do you want to really take the risk with a bank-owned financial planner and hope things are okay? I would go personally to a financial planner who charged me a fee and didn't take a cent from anybody else. That is the gold standard. They're in the minority though. They absolutely are, but Those they're worth people. finding yeah. because at least you know, the only way they make money is if you like their service and you hang around. Yep. Yep. The other way you can do it, if you if you have happen to go to a bank financial planner because you have to or you want to, or for whatever reason you think it's the right thing for you, maybe you've got an established relationship with someone you don't want to change, that's fine. Get your financial product, get your structural advice. So get your wills and estate planning, all that kind of stuff done by those. That's mm-hmm. great. Whenever they recommend another product though, whether it be an insurance product, a managed fund, a savings account, whatever they're recommending to you, ask them very clearly why this product is better than objectively, why it's better than the others. Mm. And don't accept wishy-washy, oh, just because it is, or oh, it does these things. Show me why Andrew Bank's product is better than Scott Bank's product. I think it's fair enough to ask for, is there any extra incentive for you financially to recommend these as well? And and, uh, again, the only thing I would say about that is, it is a fair question. Most of them will say no, because there isn't a direct incentive for that planner themselves. Mm -hmm. It's far more likely to be the subconscious impacts Mm -hmm. or the fact the practice itself makes money, even if the planner doesn't, from certain product being being recommended. So it's a little bit of a... 
uh, a little bit difficult. Uh, it's a bit like the, the airlines. So Qantas, for example, pay Flight Centre a bonus, a commission, if there's a certain amount of flights being put through on Qantas's um, account the whole time. Now, the individual salespeople probably don't see any of that money, mm. but Flight Centre makes the money if Qantas gives it the bonus. Mm. So what is the staff incentivized to do? Yeah. I want to keep my job, I want to make the boss happy, I want the company to make money, yep. I recommend more Qantas flights. So and it's not just Qantas, by the way, it's all the airlines. So yes, check the incentives, check the, the validity of the information. Simply say, mm. how much is this costing me? Mm -hmm. How much... Uh, what are the alternatives and why are those alternatives not as good as this product? If they can't give you a reasonable answer and a proper answer, mm. not a weasel worded, can't make eye contact, crappy answer, mm. then you know you're not being fed the right information. Yeah. And the objective, the objective information from ASIC itself mm. is that in three quarters of cases, people aren't being given the advice that's in their that's, best interest. It's a woeful indictment. That's damning, isn't it? 75%. Absolutely damning. Okay. But let's, let's move on. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. I've got a really great question from at Rocky Cricket, uh, yes. the Twitter handle, Twitter handle there. And he's trying to get his head around CFDs. That's an acronym because mm -hmm. we, we love our acronyms in the financial <laughs> game. And it stands for Contracts for Difference. Yes. He says, A, what are they? <laughs> yes. Good question. B, what minimum amount and time frame would you need to get benefit from them? That's an easy one. Yes. C, how do you work it to your advantage? That's another easy one. And D, who are the best for CFD brokering? I'm tipping by your commentary. You want to take this one. I hate CFDs. <laughs> there we go. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. It's just a financial product. How can you hate an animal object? Well, be... <laughs> I tell you why they they are what they are essentially is a leveraged instrument. We're getting a bit ranty, aren't we? It 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 exposes you to an underlying security in this case a share. So I get to buy a CFD and say Commonwealth Bank. Mm -hmm. Commonwealth Bank goes up, I benefit from that. Commonwealth Bank goes down, I lose from that. So when you say it gives you exposure to underlying asset, you really mean you can bet on share. Price I can movements. bet on share price movements, right. and and you can do that just by buying shares full stop. But, why do that? But but why do that? <laughs> why buy a thousand dollars worth of Commonwealth Bank shares when I could spend my thousand dollars? I only need to put five percent down. Hey hey, my thousand bucks I can buy twenty grand. So I can now Bank. buy t exposure hey. to twenty grand. So if 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 so I go when it doubles, I make a fortune. You make an absolute fortune. Sign me up. And and but as leverage always shows people the hard way, if it goes down a little bit. You can lose a fortune as well. The good God of leverage giveth and the good God of leverage taketh away. And you know, you must maintain a buffer with, by the way, the contract is between you and the broker. It's right. got nothing to do with the shares whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They're going to charge you fees for that. That's what they do. Um, uh, uh, if it looks as though the position is moving against you and guess what? Shares are volatile and they're going to move against you half the time in the short term anyway. And you have leverage that they're going to move much, And you're much leveraged faster, right? to the eyeballs. You, you, you can, and you really are with 95, with such one to 20, uh, mm -hmm. a leverage here. You, you could find yourself having to fork out more and more money to maintain your buffer and things can very, very, very quickly spiral out of control. So, so Rocky, it's a, I, I understand the question. If you want to have, uh, a punt and a gamble, you know, go to the casino or, or, or I, can't, I can't believe I'm recommending people go to the <laughs> casino on a finance podcast, but it's probably a better bet than, than CFD. Do you know why the casino is better? You go to the casino, you know, you're going to lose your 50 bucks, your hundred bucks, right? Mm -hmm. And you go there to have a good time. Yeah. CFDs have the, have the, have the, uh, I don't know what to call it. The, the appearance of respectability yeah. because it's offered by a broker. It's, it's a shares based product. Yeah. Therefore it must be a fantastic idea. It's shares. It, it's a broker. Like it's, it's investing, right? Yeah. Oh, plus you can, you can, you can hedge with, with, <laughs> with CFDs. You can go short, you can do all these like sophisticated things, but at the end of the day, you're exposed to this thing that is going to move randomly in the short term. It has a res 
respectable facade for absolute outright gambling. Yeah. So just just don't do it. Um, next question. Actually, uh, Rocky's got another one, mate. So I'm going to throw. Oh yeah, th- Rocky's yeah. next one. In. Yep. He asked SMS or SMSF, sorry, or employer sponsored super. For self-managed small business owner looking at about another 15 years in the workforce, is it worth it to move what's an employer-sponsored super to an SMSF and manage it by themselves or not? The other one he asks is, if you have more than one super account due to moving jobs a few times, is it better to leave it as a separate account and make small contributions to each or to consolidate to one? I reckon it's better to consolidate it all in the one. I do too. I think there's very little reason. As long as your provider is is reputable, mm-hmm. um, as long as you're not taking kind of, and they should be because they're SMSFs. Or, sorry, they're super funds. So yep. they should be they should be reasonable. You, you're only going to pay two lots of fees if you have it in separate. Normally, you charge particularly with the industry super mm-hmm. funds, which we would recommend very highly. Yep. You're getting charged per week per account. Mm-hmm. So the more accounts you have, the more fees you're paying. Um, there's nothing objective that one provider can give you that that t- you need two to do. Um, you're better off going with one account, minimizing your fees, because mm-hmm. net-net, that's the only difference between, in the same investment structure, that's the only difference between having one account versus two. You know what's really scary about a lot of employer-sponsored funds Tell is me. that you, 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 you graduate from high school or uni, whatever it is, and you, <laughs> yeah. you, you get in there and you get a job and someone hands you a form from HR mm-hmm. and they say, hey, this is super, for, this is a, a compulsory super. Yep. Um, and there's a box on, there's a couple of boxes on there and you can tick high risk, uh, medium, moderate risk, balance, low r- balance, yep. low. and any sensible person is going to say, "Well, I want balanced. I want low risk, right?" But when you're 21 and you've got 40 years left in the workforce, mm-hmm. you want high risk. And and what this is a bit of financial jargon getting in the way of common <laughs> sense here. So yep. when they say high risk, high risk fund is really just one that is exposed mainly to shares. And, and frankly, it's not high risk; it's high volatility. It's right? high volatility. But but we know over long stretches of time, and I'm really just sort of saying, you know, five, ten years plus, mm-hmm. they are easily the best performing asset yep. class. And when you're investing with a 40 year time frame, that is what you want. You that there is a, in fact, ironically, there is huge amounts of risk in going into cash at that stage because you are going to have um, the, the the very real risk of inflation eroding any wealth that you have away and, and just that opportunity cost as if well. If you are under 50, you are mad not to have your entire super fund dedicated towards shares as long as you can stomach the volatility. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? When you're playing with, when you, when you, you can't touch it anyway yep. and you're playing with that amount of time, that is absolutely what you want to do. So I would have a look. If you've got any employer-sponsored funds and you ticked a box when you were young and dumb, um, you know, just, just check what you ticked there and look to change that if you can and also take pay very close attention to the fees that are on there. Someone is probably getting a trailing commission on that. Um, Go for the lowest, easiest, broadest one that you can. In terms of SMSF or employer super, I would say for most people, go with an established super fund. Don't do SMSF unless you actually want to make those decisions for yourself. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do. So at some point, it's worth having an SMSF if you want to pick your own stocks and pick your own investments. If you don't want to or don't need to, just stick with an industry fund. It's a really simple, easy way to do it. Mm. It'll keep the fees low. It'll keep your involvement low. It keeps the compliance hassle low. For most people, just go with what you've been given. As long as, as you say, Andrew, you pick the right option within that fund, that's that's the key one here. So yes, an employer fund. The one thing I will say, by the way, is most employers have a deal with retail super funds. That is, for-profit funds run by the big banks or financial services companies. They will charge you fees that are probably, you've all seen the ads, right? With the, the guy going up the escalator and the guy going down the escalator, mm. the industry super fund ads. Compare the pair. There you go. Um, John Wood, I think, does the the old uh, Sergeant Croydon from Blue Heel. Is a bit of oh, trivia for nice. you. Um, so that's the, uh, that uh, we, we at the Motley Fool, we, we were choosing a default fund for our employees. Mm-hmm. So we went and spoke to a, a, an advice business, mm-hmm. said, which ones do you think we should? And they came back and listed them. And I won't, I won't embarrass the companies by naming them. They came up with three retail super funds, mm-hmm. the for-profit funds. Are they the ones they got the best trailing com on? Well, Apparently not. But I said to them, where's the industry funds? I'm being oh. cynical now. No, so here's the point. I said, where are the industry funds? Oh, no one's ever asked us for that. 
Mm. And so that's the, the, the chance your employer gives you the best possible fund is very, very, very low. Mm. It's better than nothing. It's probably better than SMSF. The very best gold standard for super funds being run, if you're not going to do it yourself, is got an industry fund, a nonprofit fund, because that way the fees are going to stay lower. And that is the biggest difference to your long-term returns. It's a phenomenal how much of a difference that makes. Isn't it? Uh, let's burn through a couple quick oh, ones, and then you can you can mount your pony, my friend. <laughs> um, uh, one from Jeff. Um, Hi, Andrew and Scott. Love the podcast. Thanks, mate. Sorry, uh, what, what did he say? Yeah, uh, I said I particularly like Andrew Scott. I can leave or take. <laughs> a question about the amount of stocks you should have in a portfolio. Most say ten to twenty. We touched on this recently, we actually. Did. So it, it's worth. We'll, we'll cover it again, but we'll do it quickly. Yep. He mentions he's got eighteen Australian shares, a listed investment company, a Nasdaq ETF. Yep. Talked about ETFs recently as well. Um, uh, the last. 18 months I've started to invest in US stocks. That's excellent. Tech stocks in particular. Um, uh, I've now got to 10 planning to go to 15. Um, should you only have a grand total of 10 to 20 stocks or having two different portfolios for each country? Is that the right thing to do? Good question. Uh, do you want me to do it? Yeah, I don't mind. You're that. looking at me. Okay. I'm waiting for you to tell me whether I'm answering or you're answering. Uh, well, let's both answer. Okay. I'll do, I'll do it very quickly. So very, very shortly, I, 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 I think that really no more than 25 shares is what you want. It, it just gets too convoluted beyond that. And you get the full benefits of 99% of the benefits of diversification at that level anyway. So I think once you go beyond that, it's, it's just, it's too much to manage. Um, and it's just not necessary. Over to you. I will slightly disagree with you there. Okay. Uh, I think you don't You're need more wrong. than that number. You don't need more than that number to get mm -hmm. the benefits of diversification. Mm -hmm. But some people simply choose to have more. There's no downside to having more unless you can't keep following those stocks. If you like the ideas, if they're the one you want to buy today because it's the best idea, there's no harm in that. But the more stocks you have, A, as you said, Andrew, you get less of the theoretical benefits of diversification. Mm -hmm. But plus, you also make it harder to keep touch and follow those. So, yeah. you know, we have we have different numbers of stocks in different portfolios and scorecards that we have at the Motley Fool. Mm -hmm. um, if our members are following those one for one, there's no harm in it because someone's actually doing it for them, looking over their shoulder, kind sure. of helping them do it. If you're trying to manage it yourself, the trade-off for me is diversification benefits will increase as you increase your portfolio, mm. but your ability to be right often enough and manage that portfolio as you get 30, 40, 50, 60 stocks, that starts to get silly and start very to lose messy. touch. Yeah, very so messy. So there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's the right number for you is probably, we'd say always more than 20 because mm -hmm. that's the diversification benefit. If you can keep track of that many stocks and you like that many stocks, go for it. Just be a little bit careful of your attention being divided too thinly and the chance that you miss something important in one of your companies. I guess the other thing we should touch on is Jeff's really talking about he's got Aussie sort of base shares in, in US. Does, does that, do you apply that rule again for mm. your separate portfolio or is that, that sort of more than 20 rule sort of apply across that whole spectrum? It, the more than 20 rules is a, a probably a different conversation another day because we're running out of time. But broadly, the idea of more than 20 is just if you had a randomly selected portfolio. You should have more than 20 to maximize the benefits of mm -hmm. diversification. Mm -hmm. If you've got 20 bank stocks or 10 banks and 10 miners, mm -hmm. there's no diversification benefit there at all. And mm -hmm. so to be clear, we're not saying any 20 is okay mm -hmm. or any 20 is enough. We're saying if you're, if you're randomly selecting a portfolio and you want to maximize the benefits of diversification, most of those are, are maxed out at 20, 25 mm -hmm. companies. Mm -hmm. um, if you, so, you know, if you're, if, you, if you're buying 15 tech stocks in, in the U.S., then there's no diversification there, frankly. And so I would hate for him to think, well, I'll buy 10 US tech stocks and 10 Australian financial services stocks, and then I'm diversified. Mm. So that's a really important. We talk about 20 stocks, mm. but that's 20 randomly selected stocks across non correlated the stocks, the there experts would say. Well, no, no, purely random actually is, the, is a survey just to be, okay. to be okay. horribly academic about it. So you don't have to necessarily choose them to be non correlated. Mm -hmm. If you chose any 20 at random, you start to maximize the benefits of diversification. But if you're doing it yourself, and hopefully you're not just randomly selecting stocks, exactly. try and make sure they're not highly correlated. Right. So that, that's probably the point. So, yes, 20 makes sense. But if you're buying, as, as Jeff is, you know, 10 or 15 US tech stocks, 
Uh, I would say you want many more than that to make sure you get benefits and diversification outside just pure tech, if that's what you're investing in the States. All right, mate. It's time. <laughs> I miss that sound effect when it's not around. <laughs> Liam Flanagan, thank you, sir. Have I mentioned his new show with Mark Guy? Top. Top show, check it out. Rush Hour with MG. Sydney 6 till 7. There you go. Uh, Fools, I'm going to rant very shortly because we're already over the half an hour mark and we've done a horrible, horrible job of keeping the time again. Oh, surprise, I... surprise. <laughs> like anyone's anyone's shocked by that. Oh, no one's still listening, so it doesn't That's make any difference. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's, here's what I am ranting about today. Okay. I desperately, desperately hate the term buy on the dips. Buy on the dips? Buy on the dips. The idea of like, well, I'm going to buy when the share price falls. That's when I'm going to make all my money. And it's just the most stupid, inane, ridiculous idea I've ever heard in my... Well, it's actually not unfortunate. There are so many more ridiculous, inane ideas that it's probably not even the top 10. I think this is my high horse a few months still, ago. Oh, mate. So, so I'm with you. I'm I've, so I've, with been, you. I've been reading about it this week. So Peter Morgan, who was an ex-fund manager, now a private investor, put a chart up on Twitter about the Dow Jones over the last year. It's up mm-hmm. 30%. It fell 1.4% the other day. And he said, if you're waiting Ooh. to buy on the dips, there's your dip. <laughs> You've given up 28.6% return to wait for a 1.4% decline. That is absolute stupidity. Now it's, it's a great, it's a great line to use when a broker says, we'll buy on the dips, mate. We'll buy when they're cheap. Okay. Who doesn't want to buy when the share price is cheaper? That's cool. Yeah. Here's an idea. You could buy a hundred dollar Levi jeans today. Yep. Or in a year's time, you buy for 130 bucks. Mm. Or if you wait an extra day, you buy for $128 and 18 cents. What do you want to do? <laughs> I'll take it now. Of course okay. you will. That's the bloody stupid thing about it. You buy if the shares are attractively priced relative to the future returns Regardless of what the price has done in the past, the price the past has no indication of what the future will bring. And looking at that and saying, I'm going to wait for the dip, that is just madness. Absolute, absolute I, I think madness. When I, I, now I'm, I'm certain of it. This is exactly what I ranted about not even that long my ago. My rant is better. But I would God say this. It. My point was is when when it – when <laughs> here's the thing. You don't know that it's a dip until afterwards. So is, this, is something gone down 5%? Is that a dip? I don't know. Maybe it goes down another 90% from here. Maybe it bounces tomorrow. You don't know. Once once you can look back and say, oh, that was a dip, well, the opportunity has passed. But, it, so, but even then, it, I mean, it has dipped It has dipped since where it was. So you could say, well, now it's cheaper, so I should buy it. Right. It's just a stupid thing to try and but do. Maybe if you're waiting for the price, but yeah, but if you're waiting for the price to fall anyway, yeah. buy that, but you don't know where the price is going in the future. It's as stupid. you say, it's, yeah. if, if the price is attractive, buy it. If it was attractive 100 don't buy it at 128 after it's fallen 1.4%. Yeah. And if it was attractive at 100, why are you waiting for a dip for? The market goes up over time more than it goes down. It goes up much further than it goes down. Mm. Waiting for the dips is about the most stupid trading strategy I think I've ever heard in my entire life. So, fools, get some CFDs. Make sure you buy them on the dip. Put a few stop loss orders underneath that oh. and lead yourself to misery, wreck, and ruin. Um, it's all nonsense. That wraps it up for this week, Scott. To be thanks, clear, you're saying that I'm saying the exact that was that was a very not where nonsense that the it was, it was a bad attempt at sarcasm. Oh, that's okay. what it was. Just so we're clear, you're not saying the podcast, not the podcast, is pretty good, I right? No, I don't know anymore. <laughs> Remember, you can subscribe to Triple M's Motley Four Money podcast. And if you're desperately, desperately in need of some boring stuff to talk about, two blokes who rant a lot, you really should. You should definitely do that. <laughs> um, um, You've lost your place. I've completely you? lost my place. Or you can go to oh, fool.com.au forward slash triple M. How could I think we say the same damn thing every week it's after just week to prove after that week. we're not pre recording it, mate? Uh, okay. You read from the same script. We don't do a very good job of it, let's be honest. <laughs> we never make voiceover, man, would we? Nope. We're rambling. It's time to go. It's time to go. Full on. Full on. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.